Lord, we're grateful. We, um, you have blessed us beyond measure in ways that we could spend all day counting and in ways that we'll just never even know. And just the, the protection that you provide, the love that you provide, um, access to our, our scripture and um, to the tools, to books, to resources, to other brothers and sisters, freedom to worship, freedom to participate in a Sunday school. So thank you that we have this time, that we have this material, and pray that you would bless both the time and the teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going over the themes of the Old Testament Hebrew canon, which we know is referred to as the... Thank you, Jane. Tanakh, because that's three letters that represent the three sections, categories of the Hebrew canon, those three being law, prophets, writings. Good. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, law, prophets, writings. Very good, very good. And our prophets are divided into two categories. Thank you, Tammy, former and latter. And I'm going to have some commentary here in just a little bit on this former ladder business because I think it's really helpful because, uh, you know, this whole idea of, of doing these sweeping uh, overviews of the themes is so not just so that we're stacking up bits of information, you know, want to gain a familiarity with the flow of the entirety of Scripture so we can kind of wrap our heads around it. And so I want to point out some stuff about the former and latter here in just a few minutes. Uh, and then the, uh, the, the two different sections of the writings. No. Thank you, Jane. Pre-exilic, post-exilic. So what's written before they're in exile, what's written after they're in exile, and we're going to end up bumping up against that time as well. Okay, Nick covered last week the book of Samuel. Remember, originally it was just one book, which, by the way, why, why did it get divided into two, first and second? Yeah, it's a logistical issue. The scrolls were so enormous, they had to basically put it on two scrolls. So, um, but in the Greek, in the Septuagint, so the Greek version of the Old Testament, what what was it called? Do you remember what Nick said? It, they were called. They weren't called First and Second Samuel. Uh, well, no. I mean, even after, yes, yes, it was kingdoms. So it was First and Second Kingdoms, and. Um, we'll, we'll see that kind of continue that little theme there too. Uh, and then here, here's a really good thing. Hopefully you picked up on from Samuel as well in its entirety. There are three main characters. So this, these are the kinds of things that I'm hoping that you really do remember so that you just, the, your familiarity with your Bible and where you're going when somebody brings a story up and you're thinking, uh, where do I need to go in my Bible to even generally find it? There were the, the, uh, the book singular of Samuel covers largely three people. Samuel. Samuel. Saul. Saul. And David. And David. Bingo. Gold star for Carol. Very, very good. Okay. Um, and then the main themes that, uh, so this is not a question, this is just a reminder that Nick pointed to, and I believe was on the handout that he had, uh, two of the main themes, themes were that in the present, as, as far as establishing David as the king. Israel's king was to be set apart. See, this, and this background is going to be very important for what we're looking at. 
Israel's king was to be set apart from earthly king, earthly kings and to be subject to God's word, rule, and authority. Wouldn't that be great? There's supposed to be a king that is set apart from all the other earthly kings and subject to God's word, his rule, and his authority. And then the second thing is that as it relates to the future, it demonstrates the need for a, and that there would be a greater and a righteous king who would usher in a final and eternal kingdom. So that king should be a representative, a foreshadowing of that, that eternal and final king. That would have been ideal. Okay, now getting into what we're covering, kings. So, um, same thing as, as what Nick taught as well. So, we call it First and Second Kings. Originally, it was actually just one book for the exact same reason, because of the length. Uh, but they divided it into two, and I'll give you one guess as to uh, what the title was originally in the Greek for those two sections of kings. Kingdoms, that's right, third and fourth kingdoms. So, so this was originally uh, third and fourth book of kingdoms, or third and fourth. If you look in a Sept, uh, Septuagint Bible, it will say third and fourth kingdoms. But actually, in Hebrew, they just called it kings. And um, when you see what's covered in kings, it makes perfect sense. So it should it should be pretty straightforward. Uh, a little easier to to remember in that regard. Okay, as far as the author, the author is unknown, but I want to read a quote to you that I think is pretty good. We don't know who the who the author is, but here's a quote from E.J. Young. In all probability, the author was a contemporary of Jeremiah, one who was a prophet and deeply concerned because his people did not obey the voice of Jehovah. This unknown author made use of written records, and these he mentions by name, close quote. And I wanted to read that because uh, uh, Nick took the time uh, last time to talk about the process of God's Word coming together, and that there were, you know, editors and, and things, but even those people that we don't know about, that we don't hear about, we don't, we don't know their names, but there was a, a sense in which they were also inspired in their editing and that original creation of the canon. Well, we also see that what took place is that there, were, there was material from other writings that were incorporated in the canon of Scripture that become canonized, but does not necessarily mean that the original source you know, was inspired or that it's canon, but it's still used. So God uses very ordinary means through these authors uh, to, to do that. So, and it's actually recorded in the canon of Scripture. So let's look at a few of those verses. You have your mic. Uh, um, so, Paul. And go ahead with 1 Kings 14, 29. It says 19 and 29. 14, 20, 1 Kings 14, 19, and 29. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. All right, the book of the Chronicle of the Kings of Israel. That's, a, that's not the Bible. That's some other book. And so that information is being pulled in. Okay, and then go ahead, Paul, with verse 29. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam, 
all, and all that he did, or are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Okay, book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And then we have a similar thing happening then in uh, 1 Kings 15, verse 7, and then verse 31. And I think it might even be the same titles of the, the same books. Book of the Chronicles of Kings. Go ahead, Caitlin. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And then verse 31. Yes. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Okay. So it's saying, if you want to know more information, there is it not written in these other books? But he has included at least some of those things in here. And so... Again, this is just a healthy way to look at Scripture. You know, we, we had an entire Sunday school series on how we got the Bible, and, and there's this uh, misnomer whether, that somehow, we don't think about this until somebody points it out often, but that, you know, the Word of God as you have it today did not float down out of the clouds in leather bound into your church, and it just exists as it is today all in one. It actually came about over time, and God used ordinary means in a supernatural way, in a way intended, uh, superintended by the Holy Spirit to provide us exactly what it is that we have today. So um, that's part of that idea of, of that development. Uh, as far as the dates, so it was written uh, somewhere between 560 and 538 B.C., but the time period that it's written about is 970 to 561 BC. So if you're following here, in other words, so, you know, if this date of 560 is accurate, then that would basically mean that like one year after the events happened, you know, where we're completed from this book, it started to be written down. So this is the time of the things itself, and this is when they believe the authorship. And notice that for a, for a time date, not that I remember, expect you to remember these dates, but um, this is pretty tight time frame to, for estimating, you know, you're talking centuries ago. And this is because there's nothing, uh, because there's reference to the exile and stuff, and so there are definitive points in history that, that uh, the, the people that date these things can point to that say, actually, they have a nice narrow window to work with where they're pretty confident that this was written in this, um, what is that, 22-year period. So that's pretty interesting there. Okay, I want to talk just a minute about this. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been laboring the point of the difference or the fact that, um, you know, we've got our law, we've got our prophets, and we've got our writings. Well, we are now coming to, this is the final book in the Hebrew canon, in the Tanakh, of the former prophets. We're in the middle of the former prophets. There are four, there are four former prophets and four latter prophets. And so I wanted to, again, this is a, an idea of familiarization. And what we see, this is, by the way, this is my, the way I was thinking about it. Hopefully this is helpful. But what we see is kind of a different um, focus between those that fall into the former and those that are latter. And uh, so let's look 
first of all, that's right, I was going to read this. So if we're in our former prophets, our law, the law started, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we have our Torah, what is the first book as we enter, uh, that Nick covered, as we entered into the prophets, according to the Hebrew canon, that would have been the, that first former prophet? No. Joshua. And it's, again, this is one of those things. So this is, you shift your thinking a little bit, because we think, we always think narrative, which is a literary genre, so that's accurate that there's narrative taking place. But when you plug in um, these books into their Hebrew canonical order and their descriptors in that sense, you can view what's taking place, even though it's being laid out in a literary sense as a narrative, you can view it in a different way. And the first four of the, of the, of the eight total books that fall into pro, that category of prophets, the first four are former prophets. So the question that I'm hoping to uh, answer for you here is, okay, well then what's the difference between former and latter? Well, here's a quote by a guy named Dale Ralph Davis uh, from a book called Joshua, No Falling Words. So I'm reading the quote to make the point about former prophets, even though he's talking about Joshua, because Joshua is the first of those, of the, the section of the prophets, which makes him the first of the former prophets. So this is what he says, quote, what happens when one looks at Joshua as primarily prophecy rather than history? What is this difference between former prophets and historical books? To oversimplify, it is like the difference between preaching and a world history book. The prophecy of Joshua means to convict, not merely inform, to comfort, or, or not merely inform, to comfort, not merely to enlighten. The book of Joshua is preaching material beamed into Israel in the form of historical native, narrative. We need to see clearly that history in the Old Testament is a declaration from God about God. But until we begin to think of history that way, we will do well to keep thinking of Joshua as one of the former prophets. Close quote. Okay, so here is this, uh, this, this author is trying to set the tone of Joshua and the former prophets and to think about those narratives in light of prophecy. And so one of the ways that I think that it's helpful is in this concept here of conviction. So what you have with the former prophets is you have their role being to call people to repentance. So they are trying to convict people of their sin so that in preaching God, in Yahweh, and in uh, living this out, then ideally what happens is that it results in repentance. So, um, and so it ends up in conviction of sin that, 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 that results in repentance. So if you'll take your hand out, let me point this out. I think this might be helpful. So if you take your hand out, flip to the side that, that has the Bible Project's graphic there. And on the top right corner, you see where it says the role of prophets. And this is in the context of kings. So this is still within the category of the former prophets. You'll notice that there's a, uh, there's a line through the, 
the guy standing in front of a um, crystal ball. So it's, it's not so much a focus on foretelling the future, not that that doesn't happen, but that's really not the focus. The main focus is, and it lists four things, speaking on God's behalf, they act as covenant watchdogs, they call out idolatry and injustice, and then they challenge people to repent and follow the Torah, that is to repent and follow God's law. And so that's what I'm saying is that the former prophets is that their goal is in doing those things is to bring conviction of sin that then causes the hearers of those prophets to repent. And the difference, and so as a result, you don't see quite as much focus with these former prophets on talking about the future. It does happen. There, there are things in there that are amazing, you know, prophecies. But, you know, that's why I think there's a, a tendency when you think prophecy, your brain goes straight to um, really the latter prophets and it's the former prophets that are living that out in reality. You have Joshua, who is basically the new Moses and is doing things. He's a military leader. He's conquering. He's carrying these things out. And he is a prophet that is bringing conviction of sin that leads to repentance. As opposed to the latter prophets, and we'll end up talking about this more next week because we'll be going, moving into the category of the latter prophets. But the... Um, the proclamation that takes place through the latter prophets, it has to do with conviction as well, but it's more like you've been convicted, <laughs> like judgment, gavel, bam. And so that kind of conviction, of course, ideally will drive people to repentance. So I, you know, this is me simplifying these things, but when you're thinking about the two categories, now you're talking about a, uh, a conviction you know, really that, that equates to being, to judgment. So, you know, a different point, you know, I'm using a little uh, equivocation here. So conviction that leads to repentance as opposed to there's been a conviction that says uh, a sentence has been pronounced. And so now you have um, uh, a focus with these latter prophets things fall out a lot differently. Now you have these very long books that are written saying, all right, you're going to continue to hear it. So they're, these former prophets are calling out saying repent. Latter prophets, they're saying repent, but really connected to all that is you're going to be judged. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And so now you have future events focused on a whole lot more than with the former prophets. And you have very lengthy books Isaiah, I Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So we'll look more at that, that latter prophet thing. But in your mind, you've already gotten down because I've quizzed you numerous times. You've already got down Tanakh. You've already gotten down law, prophets, and writings. Take it to the next level. And don't just remember, yeah, they're divided into former and latter prophets. In your head, understand that. Go, okay, well, generally, we see that play out in different ways. God is using his prophet, he's the mouthpiece of God, that there's a switch that takes place. And this switch that takes place from a prophetical use, use of his prophets overlays on top of history that we see in the book of Kings in reality through 
the divided kingdom. So, and we're going to look at who those prophets are and how that kind of plays out. So that's where we're trying to, uh, to look at those and how they fall together, understand philosophically kind of, uh, you know, paradigm here about the difference between these former and these latter. Jamie, did you have, I see you, uh, he wanted to make a comment there. I know he's a special case, um, but uh, would not Moses also be among the former prophets? Yes, Moses is explicitly referred to as a prophet, and he is, um, um, and, and you know, he's during the, the time of the creation of the law and when those covenants are first being rolled out. But when we're looking at a little more 30,000 foot view of, of the design of scripture, and we go, why, why are these books in this particular order? Um, we can see just that narrative playing out with Joshua. And then, you know, from Joshua, um, he covered um, Judges and then Samuel. And all of those things fall into any, any, anybody that was a prophet during that time falls into that former prophet category of, of repent or else. All the prophets in, you know, I should be careful with the all, but the, 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 the focus of the latter prophets are the or else is a foregone conclusion. It's coming. And either way, people are, you know, stepping over them like, yeah, whatever, buddy, kind of thing. But what I want you to do is to have that grid in there when we look now for just a little bit at kings as a whole which is basically another narrative, kind of like Joshua and Judges and Samuel were, but you want to keep this prophetic perspective, this former prophet perspective, as it lays over the top of the, um, the historical narrative of the Book of Kings. So uh, the Book of Kings also has three main uh, events, people, kind of type thing. And so we had, uh, Carol already nailed it earlier, so in the previous book in Samuel, we had um, Samuel, Saul, and then David. Well, right on the heels of David now, you've got his son Solomon, and now we have in the book of Kings the account of Solomon, what uh, goes on to be the divided kingdom, and then what ends in exile. So now you've got that former prophet grid in, your back, in, in the back of your head, and then now you can look at this outline or this structure. This structure comes from uh, a guy named uh, D. Ralph Davis out of a book called The Wisdom and the Folly, an exposition of the first book, or uh, an exposition of the book of First Kings. Um, I wanted to read... I wanted to read this quote as well from William Fullalove. Quote, Kings traces the history of God's people from the beginning of Solomon's reign until the destruction and exile of the nation of Judah. As such, Kings is not only theologically rich in its own right with a message about God's justice and God's covenant, but it also gives a historical context in which to read many of the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Close quote. So, those former prophets are laying the groundwork. So, when we think, um, one, of the, one of the phrases you'll see in these books a lot, 
when you talk about kind of biblical theology in these sweeping um, time periods is they'll talk about an arc. There's an arc. In fact, I think in some of the, uh, not in our graphic today from the Bible Project, but I know in one of those that, that Nick provided, um, there were these like arcs. So these arcs of time. And when you think about what's going on, remember when I was going through um, the one with Genesis and we were seeing all these beginnings and we were looking at the beginnings of these covenants that God was making. The first uh, explicit one, remember, was Genesis 3.15 where uh, he speaks about this promise that's going to take place and the promise is about a land and it's about a people and, and so from the sin, from the fall, um, due to Adam, due to the first Adam, we see kind of the launch of this trajectory over time of what's going to take place. And we see God being faithful, even though along the way man is not faithful, like we saw in um, Numbers, you know, the, it, it, the first group didn't cut the mustard, so the second group, uh, it, it was their kids that had to go into the land. And, but we see God is faithful over the course of that. And so there's this arc of what God is accomplishing that he's moving towards towards um, fulfilling the promise that he made and yet that arc starts to drop and we see that we get to this point where it reaches kind of this peak up around David and Solomon and then it just starts to take a nosedive and it ends in exile. And I mean, just historically now, when you're thinking about all, all of biblical history, Half we are now at the end of Kings. That's essentially half of the Old Testament of the Hebrew canon. So you've made it all the way through the law and through half of the prophets, and it's ended in exile. I mean, this seems like it was things were while rocky and lots of issues getting there. We're headed in the right direction as you get to David, and you're like, well, it hasn't been a smooth path. Got a lot of problems. But you can see the progress. It's like looking at your, uh, it's like looking at your investments over time, and you go, "Wow, there are a lot of spots that dropped," you know. But you look at you back up a little bit, and you go, "Wow, actually, this this whole thing, through patience and trust, is headed in the right direction." The problem is, you get to Kings, and that none of that happens. Now you're talking about the bottom dropping out. Terrible, horrible, and we have everything that's going on there. So. The first third here is 1 Kings chapters 1 to 11. That's the golden age. The middle then, uh, 1 Kings chapter 12 through 2 Kings 17. That's where there's uh, the description of the torn kingdom. And then you get down to these final chapters of 2 Kings 18 to 25. And this is basically a really nice way to say it, last days, but everything's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. As far as this whole idea of the land and the people, remember, you get to that part that a lot of people look at and say is pretty boring. What is that in... Uh, um, uh, might be in numbers where they start uh, divvying up the property, giving out all the lines. Hey, your tribe gets to go this far to this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh my goodness. But that is so important because they're actually getting the land that's been promised. So here is the physical land and then you have Joshua coming in and actually taking over the people and all this stuff is happening. I mean, it's all, it's all happening. It's all coming together. And then once they're there and taking over um, and it's handed off to Solomon, it just goes down horribly, terribly from there. So, um, all right. 
What we have here in the golden age then is Jerusalem's wealth, and we have the, this is during that time that the temple itself is being built. So in a sense, you could say, you know, I was talking about those promises, so those covenants, and the covenants are seen to be uh, being accomplished. They're experiencing the benefit of those covenant promises. And I would say, you know, an argument could be made for any of God's covenants at that point, but what covenant in particular is being accomplished at, at this point? Anyone got an opinion? That, that has a pretty one-for-one one at this point. Yes, thank you, Glenda. It's the Davidic, because the idea of the Davidic, the kind of that focus of the Davidic covenant, is that there's going to be a king. And God, now obviously all of this is not ultimate fulfillment, because that's in Christ. But when, you know, when you look about, the, when you look at the history and you go, man, it's happening, it's happening, and you go, okay, well, God made this covenant with David, and then David, you know, he gets to the point where David wants to even build the temple, but God says, no, buddy, a little too much bloodshed, and for some other reasons, he says, you're not going to actually build the temple. What we get then is, you know, there's kind of that lag um, in the blessing. You know, God makes the decision, and then the fruit of that blessing starts to take place, and that's what we have in this golden age, is David is now passed at the beginning of 1 Kings. David passes. It's been handed on to Solomon. Solomon asks for wisdom. I mean, could this be going any better from a human perspective? Not really. I mean, not, and then God says, it's almost like God's surprised. Wow, you really asked for the, the best possible thing. So I'm going to give you that, and I'm going to give you riches and long life and, and everything. And so, boy, everything's uh, all aces, and, and he, he builds the temple just like he's supposed to do. I mean, whew, it, this really is happening. And so this, that's that golden age. It's wonderful. So when we get to the torn kingdom and the uh, wheels start to come off this, the question is why was the kingdom torn in two? What happened? And that's where we get to our mark. First Kings 11, 1 to 13. Tammy. Oh, okay. you are. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Mm -hmm. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart date heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Melcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice 
and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of your hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So there we have an account of the demise. His heart, it started by loving many foreign women. They pulled, you know, he surrounds himself with false, those who love false gods. So at that point, he's not doing it, but he surrounds himself with those people. His heart is then turned, and then he's no longer wholly true. And then God, who had actually met with Solomon twice and given him direct um, um, command to follow his laws, he decided no. And I, I think it's really interesting, you know, Tammy read in there a verse that says he made a practice. So it's not even uh, of, this, of this sin of violating God's law. So it's not like, oh, he made a mistake or why can't God give him a little bit of, of room? You know, he's, he's not perfect. He made a practice of this. This is, uh, and what you read is not by practice, he's building altars for his wives to be able to go worship these false gods. It, as soon as he put himself and surrounded himself by those who bowed the knee to evil, it was just a matter of time until he too is with them and receives the judgment. And then as a result, we have the, 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 that judgment that's going to take place. So, here's, so this is somewhat interesting. Um, all right, we'll try to read them real quick. So the northern kingdom. Uh, so who's got my first Kings 13, 33, and 34? So we're going to read some verses about the result of, of this down the line. Go ahead, Jamie. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but he made priests for the high places again from all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Yep. Anybody who was willing to do it? Go ahead, Glenda. Anybody who was willing to be a, uh, a priest for a false god? you would get deputized, certified, qualified. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethabal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. All right, so these are descriptors of the northern kingdom, and then we're going to read some verses of um, how those in the southern kingdom did. So 2 Kings 21. Then Yahweh spoke by the hand of his slaves, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, 
He has done evil more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria, and the level of and the level of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. He wipes it and turns it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they had done what is evil in my sight, and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin, with which he made Judah sin, in doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. All right. Did you? You got twenty-two. Yeah, twenty is his son. He he backs he backs his play. And he so this is Ammon. Uh, he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, as Manasseh his father had done. There you go. So that's the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom, uh, when after it's torn in two, the southern kingdom lasts approximately an, an, uh, a couple centuries more. Um, the, you know, but either way, they all end up enduring the penalty for violating the covenant. Okay, so now kind of putting these, these things together. Understanding that you're talking about approximately 400 years of history that falls within the former prophets. Now, when we look at the, uh, the, the Bible Project graphic again, do you remember, does, can anyone name that, that literary technique that the Hebrews like to use that, where things are kind of um, symmetrical? Kind of have the A and then below the A prime, B, B prime, that kind of thing. Anyone remember the word? Chiasm. Yeah, it's called chiasm. So it it's kind of has this symmetrical look to it. And so we see that with kings as well. And I could show you how the kings match up in a way, uh, which, is, which is fascinating. But what, you know, with the chiastic structure, a lot of times it's whatever is at the center of that that is the thing that either interprets the rest or that, that is kind of the main point. And so I think their graphic here is helpful because you're talking about kings, so this is historical events with people in the position of power as kings, but when you apply who the prophets were over that era and you look at who is right in the middle of this kind of chiastic thing, you have Elijah and Elisha. So they're kind of the centerpiece from the prophet standpoint. They're the heavy hitters. There are other prophets, in fact, the flip side of your uh, handout there, lists uh, the you know the prophets that were going at the times of the the respective kingdoms and everything. So there are other prophets at play for sure, but the heavy hitters are Elijah and Elisha. And on top of that, um, what you have then is at that center space is you have the rule of Ahab and Jezebel. And um, somebody one of the verses that was just read was, do you think this is a small thing? And he even lists Ahab and Jezebel, like that they can be this way and how evil they are. So you have how evil Ahab and Jezebel are, and at the same time you have then the prophets of God, of Elijah and Elisha, that are enduring intense persecution from these folks as well. So there's a bit of a climax right in the middle of this whole thing. 
And it's kind of fascinating. There's, uh, in 1 Kings 19, there is, uh, you know, kind of a Moses moment there. So you recall that Moses, after he received the Ten Commandments, he comes down, he sees that Israel is worshiping the golden calf, it breaks the, the, the tablets, and, um, but from that, he goes before the Lord and pleads their cause, pleads for them, and what ends up happening after that is that God, member shows him his glory, shows him his backside, and he uh, gets uh, at least a taste of his glory, receiving assurance of the promise that God has made. All that, those things are happening. Well, here, do, can, can anyone think of what, what is the major false God-related um, confrontation that takes place with Elijah? Big story? Yes. The 400, 450 prophets, that whole, you know, whichever God can bring fire down, all that stuff, right? So huge story. And that too, then, there's some similarity in the sense that Elijah confronts this idol worshiping and then introduces judgment on all of them, which of course enrages Ahab and Jezebel. He goes into flee. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't, he, his prayer is more like, Lord, I'm the only one. But what ends up happening is that God then, in a unique way, meets with Elijah. And remember, he has the storm, he has the fire, he has the earthquake. But it was in this, this, this small voice, right? And that's where God was present. So you have this kind of similarity going on. And in doing that, at the same time, do you remember the assurance that he provided Elijah? Because Elijah was just beside himself. Do you remember why he was so upset and what assurance God gave him? Anyone? What do you think, Wayne? Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. Wayne just said, uh, Elijah was like, after he fled after this, he says, I'm the only one. I'm it. And he was being faithful, but he was fretting because he's like, I'm the only one. And God, in a special way, showed him his glory in a, in a, in a, in a low whisper and then tells him, I have 7,000. I have a chosen remnant. You're not the only one. And so there's a, an ongoing promise that when things appear to be at its end, that he is maintaining that promise that he has made. And so uh, the end of Kings is basically the peak of disappointment in, in many ways for those that have held on to this Davidic covenant, that there will be someone from the line of David that will sit on his throne. That's that promise, right? There's someone from the line of David that's going to sit on the throne. My goodness, if you go from David to Solomon and then you watch what happens over the following centuries with these kingdoms to the point that Assyria drags away the northern kingdom and Babylon drags away the southern kingdom, then, well, then what's left? How is that, how is that covenant going to be kept? And so you see this big sweeping story over kings that shows this augering down that, that just seems to absolutely just implode and there's no hope except for the last four verses of Kings of the entirety of Kings and so Jane if you would read 2nd Kings 25 verses 27 to 30 and in the seventh excuse me and in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim king of Judah in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, 
graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Okay, so just a visual, just uh, last week, my family and I were in New York. Um, I had the opportunity to go to the 9-11 memorial, and one of the things there is that um, in the middle, in that, in that footprint where all that disaster and, and destruction took place, there was a tree that had been largely destroyed, but there was a tiny little, uh, a little bit of a root essentially left of it, and they took it out, and they uh, gave it to a, a nursery, and they nursed it back to health, and then they brought it back and replanted it back in the middle of that, of where the towers used to be, and there's a tree, and they, uh, in fact, oh, I think it's called the survivor tree, and so, and it's healthy, and there's someone standing there guarding it, like, at all times, so you can walk right up to it, but my daughter-in-law even went up just to touch a leaf, and they were like, don't touch it, so anyway, that just, I, that, I picture that, because here, and if, if all you read were those verses that Jane just read, it sounds kind of nondescript, but what we have is, in the context of this exile, and this judgment, where they're basically on the about to be wiped out there's a little bit he lets him out he lets him eat at the table and it's somebody from the line of David and then that ends kings and that closes out the former prophets and so the sweeping historical prophetic you know accounts are just weaving that together is beautiful helpful so Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for um, these materials. Help them to sink to our heart. Uh, of course, we want to have greater appreciation for what, you've, um, for what you've done, but may it give us greater familiarity with your Holy Scripture so that it produces godly fruit in our lives. And Lord, we pray for this service that we're um, about to participate in. May you be glorified. May the preaching of the word cut us to the quick. Be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.